Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, <clears throat> the past several weeks, we have been hanging out with the Beatitudes. And here are the words that we have been hearing together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, as we hang out in them again today, it's good for us to hear that the, those words, they are not describing some made-up people. I mean, aren't, they aren't describing Jedi Knights in a, in a galaxy far, far away. They aren't describing some kind of people that you and I could be if we tried really, really hard every day to be those kind of people. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that these are the kinds of people that we already are, that these are the kinds of people that we are becoming in Him. The Beatitudes are our identity. As Jesus says it, he says it plainly after he finishes through this section in the Beatitudes. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say try really hard to be the salt of the earth or work double time to be the light of the world. He says, that is who you are. That's our identity. And one of the things that mark us out as God's people is that we are peacemakers, and as we've been doing, we're going to move closer to that through Jesus' words, and specifically in Matthew chapter 5. So let's turn there. Let's turn to Matthew 5, um, begin in verse 9, and then in verses 21 through 26. And you can follow along in your order of worship, where it's printed, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read through, the, through Matthew. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, this is God's word. It's given for our good. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would use this word that we have read and heard together, and by the power of your spirit, use this word to speak to us again, to lead us to Jesus, that you would show us his grace, and as a people, you would change us by it. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Well, in our passage today from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus, he picks up this conversation on the law. You see, just moments before our text, Jesus addresses the concern floating around him that his words and ministry and presence are in some, some way replacing God's law. And if Jesus' presence pushes forward that tension, he teaches his listeners that he hasn't come to replace the law or the prophets, but he has come to fulfill it. And Jesus' word, it reassures his listeners and reminds us that God's law is good, but they don't have, to, they don't have the full picture. The problem is not, not uh, the problem is our human heart. Jesus picks us up because he begins to move into this problem that the human heart is, is all too happy to make the law a checklist rather than searching out and embracing the spirit or the intention of the law, the same law that God gave Moses. And at the heart of the law is the Ten Commandments and many other instructions that God gave his people so that they would inherit the land, that they would know how to live as they inherit the land and be set apart from those around them. And these instructions, these commandments, they are really good guide markers for how to be in this world. But they are not the end in and of themselves. And Jesus is saying that there is more, that he is breaking into the world to fulfill the true intention of the law. So Jesus picks this up. And he moves into several examples of what, it, what he means. What he means when he says he is the fulfillment of the law. Now right away he begins this series of examples that echo this phrase in verse 21. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what is Jesus doing? He's putting himself front and center with Moses up on the mountain. He Jesus on this mount is signaling to those around him that he is the better Moses. And so when Jesus speaks, I say to you, he is speaking with the same authority as the one who spoke to Moses on Sinai. In other words, as Moses received the law and spoke it to God, God's people, Jesus himself is the living, breathing, incarnate word of God come down to his people. So let's move closer to Jesus' words here. He says, you have heard that what was said of, the, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the word anger here means literally to carry anger or to nurse a grudge. The word resentment probably speaks to the fullness that Jesus is conveying. Because resentment is something that carries on. It persists with anger. It's the habit of a stewing and the prolonged anger that Jesus really is confronting with judgment. And here's the thing. Jesus takes this rather attainable command, right, don't don't murder, <laughs> and says that if you are going to nurture anger, if you're going to nurse a grudge, if you are going to have disdain for someone in your life, you will be judged as a murderer. 
I mean, we can imagine some people listening to this and might be rolling their eyes at Jesus. I mean, come on. This sounds a little bit like the weird guy in the room who's always uh, taking things a little too far, right? But Jesus' words here, they, they, they are meant to feel heavy, and they seem a little extreme, right? And Jesus, he's pointing us to the spirit of the law, and what is that? What is the spirit of the law? Well, Jesus, he fleshes it out more precisely later on in Matthew when he says that the whole law, it hangs on these two things, the love of God and the love of neighbor. Jesus wants us to see that murder doesn't just spring up from nowhere. We, we all know what it's like when someone gets under our skin in just the right way, right? Or maybe the, their personalities just rub you the right way, and it stirs strong feelings inside of you. And when this happens, their humanity and their personal identities, they get traded in for other objectifying labels and names. There's something inside of you that says about that person, even if outwardly you're able to remain civil with them, you say that the world would be better without that person. Jesus says every time we let this resentful and sneering anger smolder inside of us, we are nurturing the seed of murder. And even if we are able to hold our tongue and not actually say angry or hurtful words or our face holds, our, we, we recognize that our face still holds our anger. How we hold ourselves speaks our anger. The, the tone of our voice communicates our anger. Even our avoidance of the person can be an assault to let them know just what we think of them. There's not much in this world that can suck the joy out, and put a bitter edge on, fam- on a family's life, on a friendship, on a, on a work relationship in the same way that bitter, self-righteous anger can. And this is why Jesus, he goes on to say that, that reconciliation, it takes precedence over worship. He says in verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now in Jesus' time, if you wanted to give a gift at the altar, it, you know, it's a big deal. If you, didn't, if you didn't live close by, you may have to travel for days. It wasn't something that you could do all of the time. And so Jesus is saying, if you have gone through all of that trouble, the time and the preparation, and right in the middle of the ceremony, you realize that you have a relationship with someone that is unraveling, that you need to reconcile with, then you need to turn around and go and make it right. Jesus uses this intense and dramatic language to tell us something important. And Jesus, he wants us to hear that we must live day to day with an urgency when it comes to relational repair. He's telling you and me not not to put it off, not to let the pot simmer one more moment. It doesn't matter how much this inconveniences us or it doesn't matter how difficult it is. He's inviting us to move past our broken inclinations to blame or to belittle or to destroy in our heart. It's an invitation to come to those whom we have sinned against and ask 
for forgiveness. So let me ask, in what situations do we need to seek repair in relationships? Well, the symptoms can be many, right? Jesus, he points to one, the unresolved conflict. Perhaps it's a verbal, hurtful exchange of words that leave wounds and people are just moving on without actually attending to those wounds. We also need repair when we let our frustration or disapproval of another or what they've done, we, when we let it lead to gossip, passing along negative information about someone, right? Or maybe the symptom that you need repair is when you experience delight at another person's difficulty or failure. Or maybe the symptom is more subtle. Maybe it's when you feel awkwardness and distance in a relationship. And let's be honest, humbling ourselves and lowering our defenses in order to repair is difficult. <laughs> it's hard. And it is one reason why the religious leaders, they love to cling to the letter of the law, right? Because most of us are good, are, of us are good if the standard is do not murder. <laughs> but when the law is to actually love in such a way that anger is overcome, many of us are left feeling inadequate and ill-equipped. And here's the thing. There are really good reasons for that. I just want to say that. For one thing, right, many of us have not experienced emotional repair and reconciliation as the norm in our lives. Right? Most of us didn't have families where this was done well. I mean, many didn't have parents who, when they did something that hurt you, they, they would quickly recognize it and acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. And they, they, they then they then would then seek to love you better, right? Or when they were angry, they didn't confront you in a loving way. Rather, they made you pay for their anger. And friends, when repair wasn't something modeled for us, it can be a scary thing to move towards. It can cost us. Think about it this way. If you have a car and the check engine light goes on, you can choose to ignore it and your car may even run for a while, <laughs> but eventually your car is going to break down. And the cost may be far greater than if you had invested in the time and money to repair it. Anger is the warning light, telling you that not all is well. And the harsh reality is that when we leave things broken, the disrepair will follow us. And here's the strange and the counterintuitive thing. Most of us, including me, are afraid of conflict. But in most of our relationships, the conflict or the rupture in that relationship is rarely, if, if ever, the most significant part. You see, the repair is what is critical. In fact, the ruptures are often opportunities to strengthen in relationships. If a rupture can be repaired, then it demonstrates to each person that the relationship is solid enough to withstand the storm. In fact, if we never have conflict in our relationships, then it probably means that at least one person isn't showing up with their whole selves. Now, the good news for people like us is that Jesus, in fulfilling the law, is not saving us 
just from something. He is saving us for something. He's saving us for these, from these old and tattered ways of living that force us to protect ourselves rather than entrust ourselves to life-giving relationships. He's saving us from, uh, uh, from a small and muted and turned-down life and giving us the means to have a, a big and turned-up and spirit-filled life. And so how does Jesus say that repair happens in relationships? Well, it happens when we practice repentance and forgiveness. It happens when we are peacemakers. Well, it brings us back to Jesus' first words on the mount, right? These identity markers of God's people. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they, be call, they will be called children of God. Well, what is Jesus getting at here? Well, the answer to that question, it begins for us, as it always does, in the person of Christ. It begins in the flesh and blood reality of our long and messy history with God. You know, the history that, that, that speaks to all the sinning and the wickedness and the evil and the injustice and the pride, that, that story, that the one if we're honest, it's hard to sit down in. But what if we did? Perhaps sit down with David and begin to see the allure of power and lust. And before we get to that part about God, about, about David's heart chasing after God, before we get to that part, we can see that his heart was after someone else's wife. And he used all manner of his power to murder the husband of the woman he had to possess. What if we sat in that part of the story for a little bit? What if we sat down in Saul's story? You know, the story before people started calling him Paul and an apostle and the person that God used to craft and carry forward his life, transforming word to the ends of the earth, right? What if we sat down in the story of Saul, the one who was zealous and used that to, to persecute and to kill others, right? And more than that, he used his mor morality to prop himself up before, before people so that he could appear blameless, building fences, distancing himself from those people over there, right? The, those tainted and unclean people. You see, there's a version of making peace that moves quickly past those really messed up parts to get to those nice and buttoned up versions of our stories. And many of us, if not all of us, know what it's like to have someone sin against us and those sins aren't owned by the offender. And maybe even as you think about it, if you can feel the injustice, you can, you can begin to feel that, the remnants, the remnants of that well up in your body even right now. And even though you can carry on, you remember the silence. You remember the lack of concern or the unwillingness to make it right again. And that silence, it, it, that silence, it feels like an open wound, unaddressed and exposed, slowly deadening the health of the relationship. And what do you do then? <laughs> well, Paul, he, he gives us a clue. He says in Romans 12, he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
interesting words, but do you hear the nuance of those words? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, the posture of a heart towards towards someone not seeking reconciliation, who who is setting themselves at a distance from us, either because of what we have done or because of what they have done, the posture towards them is first, what can I own? What's mine? As far as it depends on you, what can I own in this situation? What's my responsibility in the circumstance to own and repent of if necessary? Now, let's not be naive, right? It can be so easy to say to our spouses or friends, people in our workplace, I mean, this is, this is your problem. <laughs> we feel the justification erupt within us. You know, we could say, I, you know, I've asked you over and over again not to do this or not to forget this, and you keep doing it over and over again. And how often can we be awakened to the righteous thrill of holding people to account and the empty satisfaction of making them pay for that? But when you have gone through the work of what can I own, what can I repent of, and say to that other person, you know, that the next step is just to acknowledge truth. And sometimes that looks like doing the things that we despise which is pressing the other person to own what they have done. Sometimes having a true peace means pushing further into conflict, pressing the other person to own their wrong. And some of us have grown up around, or we ourselves are comfortable with, with the truth bomb mentality, right? Mentality that, you know, it's, it's okay just to get it out there. It doesn't matter how it comes out, and, and some of us may laugh at this too, right, that this caricature of, of a person truth-bombing everyone. But before you do that, just think about how many times you have said something to a spouse or a friend or to someone wanting them to feel it, and not in some nice way. You wanted the truth to land and be felt and submit your point. You wanted them to know that you are right and that they are wrong. Man, such a powerful place, right? See, God has in mind what the pressing looks like in everyday flesh and blood reality of our relationships. It looks like pressing with gentleness. It looks like pressing with humility. It looks like pressing with kindness. And it looks like pressing with forgiveness. Well, we also live in a time when it's real easy to to step out. We can say to others or ourselves, you know, you just do you and I'll do me and we'll be good. Or we can address each other's concerns with, you know, maybe phrases like, you know, life's too short to worry about that. Or, you know, it is what it is. You just got to move on. I mean, these harsh and disengaged platitudes, right, they, they, they promote the status quo. They, they, they silence engagement. They, they promote disconnection over and over again. And so if it's true that we despise the pressing, we can also despise the receiving of truth. And so receiving, it looks a lot like the pressing. It looks like receiving and owning truth with honesty and humility and and with grace. Well, Jesus will say later on in Matthew to turn to to turn to uh, to turn the other cheek. 
You know that phrase? And his point is not to open yourself up to continued abuse. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is by turning the other cheek, he is, he is saying, I am inviting a continued relationship with you, even though you have wounded me. And this relationship, it still matters to me. You see, when, when it gets hard to sit down in the messiness of our stories, Jesus isn't minimizing the broken parts. He doesn't deny the real and felt ruptures in our relationships. He doesn't just put on a smile and minimize the, the impact that real sin and abuse and injustice and neglect have had on our relationships. And when we look to him in faith, Jesus takes on himself the full accounting of the impact of our sin. It shows us and it enables us to do the beautiful and the costly work of making peace and reconciliation. And the really beautiful part about this work that Christ has done for us, right, is that it frees us up to stay in it with somebody. Christ making peace for us opens us, us up to, to, to failure in a whole new way. Because Christ has made peace for us, it allows us to be vulnerable, to open ourselves up. And, and, and we may even see that my weaknesses and my ability to hurt and to be hurt is way deeper than I ever thought possible, right? But our capacity to repair to attend to the open wounds in our relationships, to love and be loved is far greater than I could have ever imagined in Christ. It's a beautiful surprise. Church, Jesus invites us to be who we are, sons and daughters, pursuing repair and peace with those we have offended, and maybe for you this morning, that is pursuing repair with your spouse. Maybe it's pursuing repair with one of your children or a friend or that coworker who just knows how to set you off. Right? And may Christ bless this work in our lives. Let me pray. Father, give us the courage and the strength to cultivate peace and repair in our relationships. We're thankful that you accomplished the work of peace in our world through your Son. We've been set free from the rule of sin and disrepair. Father, we know that you do not tire of loving us, and thank you that even though you know everything, you are not cynical, that you are hopeful even faced with a world filled with chaos. And God, as we accept your peace in Christ, help us to turn to our neighbors, to love them out of that peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.